Elixir Talk is brought to you by Crevalli, an Elixir training and development firm run by me, your Elixir co-host, Desmond Bowie. If you're interested in a training course for you or your team, or you have a design question on an application at work, visit our website at crevalli.io or email me directly at desmond at crevalli.io. That's D-E-S-M-O-N-D at C-R-E-V-A-L-L-E dot I-O. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie and I'm joined as always by my co-host Chris Bell. Hello Desmond. Hello Chris. What's the news in New York? The news is that it's jumper weather, which is, you know, the inevitability of winter is upon us. So, yeah, that's it. Well, over here in Los Angeles, it is, uh, it's actually not so sunny and warm. <laughs> the sun's going down and it's cooler than you might expect. Uh, I, I mean, I can see you on this hangout and see the sunshine in the window and it's kind of depressing. There's actually a LA marketing committee that goes around and makes sure that the sun is shining in the back of anything that's filmed in this town. So people will get the impression that it's always sunny and warm. Just, just attracting all those East coasters over there. I know, or at least making them feel guilty about not being here. Yeah, I kind of do feel like that considering it's pitch black outside. Well, Chris, if you're interested in coming out here, there's an MPEX conference happening in February. Oh, really? There is. In fact, our CFP is currently open. It's open until December 15th, if you want to submit a talk. And uh, tickets go on sale December 1st. So I think by the time this podcast comes out, tickets will be on sale. So be sure to check that out. It's a great way to uh, go someplace warm when it's probably cold outside. I keep promising you I'm going to put in a talk submission, so I should probably get around to doing that as well, right? Please do. Yeah. Yeah, I I will. I will. It will be it will be the best one yet. I'm sure it will. Maybe. I'm sure it will. <laughs> so uh, what's on tap for today with Elixir Talk? What is on tap? Well, that, that's a good question. Uh, so we actually have uh, a question from one of our community members on the uh, Elixir Talk issues page, uh, which is which I thought would be a good thing for us to talk about. Um, so it's designing better drop-in libraries like the many that are already in the Rails ecosystem. And they give the example as the acts as taggable or acts as one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I think we should, I think we can do a bit of a deep dive into this. What do you reckon? Sounds good. Yeah. So what, what kind of libraries have you used recently? Well, my first reaction is about not designing drop-in libraries. Um, because I think a lot of uh, these Rails conveniences come from Ruby's metaprogramming, um, duct type system, uh, and some of its reflection capabilities, which mean that you can just add this line of code into your model, and then magic happens. And then you can call a bunch of free methods or um, unnamed things are added to your uh, object or class. And that's kind of anathema to how we do things in Elixir, which is very... Uh, explicit, um, I was going to say functional, but that's <laughs> obviously true. Um, but yeah, it's it's about being explicit. We've defined these functions um, in our modules and we're passing in all the arguments that the thing needs and there isn't stuff going on behind the scenes that we can't see. 
So do you think the magic is a bad thing always? Because, I, I mean, there is a lot of convenience in a lot of these libraries, right? Like, I'm hacking on something. I want to get it done fast. Oh, I need this. I'll just drop it in. Job's, job's done. I don't think it's always bad. I think the I think the danger is that there isn't a clear line between, oh, this is really convenient or, oh, I'll just like, I'll just do this one quick thing. Um, we'll write some macro that will spit out an entire controller for me that's customized the way I, I like it. Um, yeah, like in individual cases, it's usually fine. But I think what we see is that uh, it starts to creep. Over time, you start adding something else and then some developer leaves and then they forget how it works. Um, and then new people coming in have a steep learning curve because there is stuff happening that they can't see, which is like the whole point of these explicit um, functions. I do remember a time I was on a Rails project and I, I looked in the gem file and there was like paperclip, carry away, there was like many ways to upload a file. And I think that was like, born out of the fact that there was all these different libraries that were very easy to drop in and people had forgotten that there was other versions of it rather than like, I think a lot of the time the Elixir way is like, oh, you write a module around that and then maybe you bring in some external functionality, but you still represented the fact that like, you know, you're, you're doing uploading or something like that in your very particular kind of module that defines those functions that perform that behavior. Um, so you have an easy place to find it and kind of work with it. I, I mean, that that's probably not always true because you're probably always going to end up with the fact that like your code base gets really big and, and at times you forget that you're actually already doing something and it's not well documented or something like that as well. There's no magic, but yeah. I think a lot of us have been there in a code base where you're writing some method or some piece of functionality or you pull in a library and you're working on this for a bit, maybe a day or two before you realize that that functionality already exists and you get blame it. And then you're the one that wrote it four months ago. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> yeah. Forgotten about it and yeah. rewritten the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, like, I guess, I guess uh, the way that they're pushing everyone like documentation first um, documentation being part of your code and trying to set like document as you go um, and then generating that docs into something that your team can access as well to have a bit more of a starting place to find, hopefully find these things before you start adding something and realize that you've already got it, you know? Mm -hmm. But let's say that we we did find ourselves in the case uh, where we wanted to, we wanted to write some module that would give us functionality that we could quote, drop in. Um, now, first of all, sorry. So the question is, how would we go about doing that? And I think the first caveat is you wouldn't like, add those functions to your object because we don't have objects. We just have other functions. So I think you can call those directly. You can import them um, mm -hmm. from another module into yours. And I think that's probably the way I would handle something like image uploading mm -hmm. um, instead of adding a bunch of methods to like an attachment object for resizing or whatever. Just take your image, pass it to your resizing functions, take the output, save it somewhere. Um, I think it's also worth looking at design patterns like um, plug, for example, how that's designed as a chain that you can insert middlewares into and then um, decorate essentially the data structures that come through. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think you're right about the, the importing. I think uh, a lot of ways that you see libraries be dropping in Elixir is just like a using macro where 
um, if you're not familiar with a using macro, it basically allows you to, um, to, to execute the body of the using macro inside of the module that you're bringing it into. Um, so you can bring in stuff like you can do your imports in there. You can, hopefully you don't do this, but you can define functions in there if you need to. You can alias things. So then they end up inside of the module that you're using it inside. Um, and it gives you that code reuse and the code sharing that you need to, to achieve some of these things. But um, yeah, but you're right. You're doing it on your own terms, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of difference here is like you're, you're making yourself a particular, a particular boundary around that piece of functionality. You're bringing it in and then you're, you're doing the work. Yes. And you're clear about what am I bringing in? What am I, what am I using? Like what's the, what are the functions and functionality that I am? like tacking onto my module. Yeah. What, what cases have you had where you've like, you haven't actually been able to find a library that you've needed yet? Uh, you mean I've wanted to do something and there's no hex package? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, actually I was working at a project recently where I needed Google calendar integration and there was no library that, uh, mapped to Google's calendar API. So what did, what did you do in that situation? I wrote a thin wrapper around their HTTP API. Right. I mean, right. And I, like, honestly, like, I think like 80% of the libraries I've ever used are basically thin wrappers around APIs. And I'm like, oh, wait, we can just own this ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's not that bad. And like, yeah. I think the folks that um, were maintaining the XAWS uh, libraries ran into this issue because the one came out for S3. And I think there was one for um, AWS Lambda or something. And then they were like, you know what? We're not going to do this for every single AWS service because there's a zillion of them. And just like, feel free to contribute your own slash like write something against their HTTP API. Uh, we, XAWS is a bit of a trigger word with my team, by the way. Um, so I, I probably won't delve into that too much here, but like I, it, it does have a lot of functionality for most of the AWS APIs. It's It's pretty fully featured, but yeah. I, I mean, I think like the example we've had on, on, on my team specifically has been like, oh, um, like segment, for instance, which is like an analytics platform is like, okay, literally you need to implement like three functions like, around their API to make an API wrapper. And we're like, okay, we'll just do that ourselves. Right. And then we write mocks for it. We write tests for it and then we're good to go. And it's, it's, I, I, I do get the idea of like bringing in lots of these external libraries, but at the same time, um, I think for the cases of very thin wrappers, I think it's fine to own it yourself. It's not that bad. I think for things that are more complex, sure, like external libraries are definitely, it's definitely what you should be doing. Don't take this as a count of like, write everything yourself just because you can. But um, I, I feel like so many of the libraries that you use in Ruby day-to-day -day are, just, are just that, are those thin wrappers. Yeah, I agree. There's also the situation where uh, you have many things in your application that need uh, the same functionality. I worked on an application a long time ago. It was a hyper-local news website. And so, uh, for example, one of the things that happened was a bunch of different models needed um, a location. And so someone wrote uh, an acts as locatable library. And this was all internal, you know, it was just specific to our use case. But it, someone wanted to be able to put in, to write that one line in their model, access locatable, and have the model know about 
lat long um, columns in the database, uh, validations, and uh, a couple other methods. And they didn't want to have to do that for uh, the five or six models that needed this. So I think that's an interesting um, that's an interesting problem to solve in Elixir mm-hmm. because I don't know if you would. I don't think you would use a using macro for that. Certainly, when you're defining the uh, the fields in your schema, you have to write those out. I mean, there's the timestamps macro. Yeah, I mean, you could probably do it. Like, you could probably make a macro around it, like import it and then execute it inside of the schema definition for the for the uh, ecto like schema. I don't know, but but like, how much value did you actually get from doing that versus the duplication? Like, well, and you end up with a case where if you already know everything about how it works, then you just kind of scan over it, but um, it's not discoverable. Right. You see this one line, and then you see these methods coming from who knows where, and later you find out, oh, well, there are these columns in the database. You don't know, oh, are these cached somewhere? Right. Is there some other representation? Is there some sort of computed? Uh, column is there a materialized view related to this uh yeah it's all very opaque and it's all very magical i like for me that's like I, there's that sandy metz quote about like duplication is cheaper than the wrong abstraction and like that that smells like that to me it smells like the fact that like you know you've tried to wrap all this stuff up in a convenience method and before you know it you're passing 15 options to it because you've got 15 different use cases and then, you know, you could have done it, uh, you could have composed it in a different way and maybe place an abstraction above those those models or whatever that you use it and then just duplicated the, the fields on each model, something like that, which I think in Ecto, that's what exactly what you would end up doing, right? I think so, because invariably you end up with a situation where you want to run validations on this model sometimes, but not other times in the other model. So then you have these complicated, oh, well, now I'm going to set some like virtual attribute just to avoid running that thing. So I can say, don't do this because everything's, you know, funding, funneling through the same pipeline. Uh, and here's where I think the explicitness, some might say verbosity of um, Elixir really shines. And when I first started writing Elixir, I was working with Phoenix and I got really annoyed that I would have to pi- pass the connection into all of the controller functions. I thought, this is so obvious. Can't you just like have this for me? Why do I have to go through this rigmarole? But now I really like it. And I really like, no, just add these fields into your schema. If everything has a lat long field, like just copy paste those lines. It's very simple to do. doesn't take any time. And really in the long run, which is defined as any run after those two lines, like... I think the simplicity uh, is worth it. Yeah, and, and and then I think you would like okay. Let's say that you had a couple of different, I don't know, a couple of different tables in your system that needed that lat long data or, or had to do something with it, right? You would encapsulate that in a service that then accepts those things into function heads, have the different cases and different function heads if needed, mm-hmm. right? And then do the thing that you needed to do there versus like having it in the model. Yeah. Or have a protocol that fell back to some default implementation. Right. Like we have different ways to do this stuff. Like, do we need drop-in libraries for all of this? Probably not. Is it nice to have those drop-in libraries sometimes in Rails? Sure. Right? Like it I'm I, I have definitely had the situations where it's helped. It's 
it's sped up development. But then like you're saying, in the long run, is that the right thing to do? Like, is actually using that abstraction going to cost you more in the long run because your use case for it there is fine, but then the use case diverges and now you've got like, you've got a ton of conditionals because you tried to like, I don't know if you've had this situation with device, but I've definitely had that where you're like, you're trying to hack device to fit every single authentication need that you have in your system. And it's, it's like, the complexity has just gone like plus, 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 you know? One wonders if Jose realized that when he wrote Devise and thought about it when <laughs> he was working on Elixir. Well, maybe we can ask him sometime. Sure. <laughs> I do. I mean, I like Devise is a great library, but I, I do like Guardian as well with what they're doing and try and make that like Warden-esque kind of simple authentication library that, you know what? It doesn't do everything for you. And like, to be honest, every use case where I've ever built this and actually in anger in a serious app, I haven't needed to do all of the magic out of the box. I've just like, I've wanted to code it because we've had different use cases and like, and, and it's been fine. It's like, yes, you have to maintain a bit of extra stuff. And like, really, if you don't want to maintain that, use a service, right? Like get rid of auth from your app in, in its entirety, use something like auth zero or something like that, right? If, if you're really like, oh, I don't want to maintain authentication code. Mm-hmm. So I I just think like, I, I think people try and try and lean on these things so much, especially, especially in Rails where you have all the, the gems that bring in like all the CSS and stuff for you. And like some of them are really useful. Like I've definitely got a lot of mileage out of like active admin before. Um, without having to build something, but there comes a point where you've like, you've bastardized the monkey patching so much that you're like, you just don't know where the monkey patching ends and like all of your stuff like begins, you know? Yeah. So it's, yeah. So it is our, is our thought here that maybe like we shouldn't be designing these Uber one-liner drop-in libraries. I think so. I think it's okay to say I have shared functionality that you put in its own module and then whatever needs it calls it. Um, and I'm not against using macros by any means. No, use them. Yeah. Use them, use them carefully. But yeah, I, d- I don't think that, I don't think that having the, a few using macros to just to, to clean up your code is a bad thing. I really don't. I think, uh, I think in, in a lot of larger projects, it actually makes things a lot more mm-hmm. clear and you're kind of, grouping together shared functionality and that's great mm-hmm. so but don't be afraid of just writing this stuff out it's fine it's what we do here it'll help you in the long run right those three lines aren't taking you that long and aren't that much to maintain <laughs> you know yeah i I, th- I think that um i think like if i remember uh cameron who's one of the other mpex organizers had a really good post about like the state of the Elixir ecosystem last year that dug into like, do, does it have all the libraries you need? And I think he came to a lot of the similar conclusions that we're coming to now, um, where you know that that you can you can pretty much like I, I can't remember a time recently where I haven't been able to find a library I've needed on Hex as well. Um, obviously, the kinds of libraries that we're talking about are slightly different because there aren't those drop-in ones all the time, right? But like in terms of generalizations across things that you need and and abstractions so you don't have to maintain that in your own code base. 
I think the Elixir community has done a very good job so far of writing pretty high quality um, libraries. Like there's very few that I found to be subpar or that we've needed to to change substantially to use. Um, and I, I think that's a really good thing. You know, I, th I don't think if you're out there and you're like, you're evaluating Elixir and you're like, oh my God, it doesn't have all the gems. You're like, yeah, it doesn't have all the gems, right? We're, it's not a mature ecosystem like Ruby yet, but it's mature to a point where you can do pretty much what you need to do and you can be productive in doing it. And I think that's what matters here. And writing it yourself is not as intimidating as it's. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you want to write an, an API wrapper, like do it. It's, it's not that much work. Um, like if you look at some of the common libraries for some of the API wrappers as well, that like you can dig in and see what other people are doing and all the patterns that other people are using. And uh, it's really, really isn't that crazy, you know, to do. So I, I know we had another question from the community that we kind of wanted to tackle today as well, Desmond. You... Yeah, it comes from our friend Ross Kaffenberger, who was uh, one of the original MPEX organizers. Shout out to Ross. Yeah. What's up, Ross? Um, Ross, thank you very much for asking this question. So uh, Ross asks, on application design supervisors, um, so he says, what thoughts or suggestions do you have for deciding when to add a supervisor to your application? Which is a great question. It is a great question. And um, the fun thing is that all applications come with supervisors. You start an application, there's a supervisor built in, um, even above your application itself. So everything in Elixir exists inside of a supervision tree. And uh, it's sort of the next, I would say, intermediate level Elixir application design to start thinking about your app in terms of the supervision tree and restart strategies. And how do these things relate to each other? And if this thing goes down, what else can survive and what else needs to be restarted? Uh, I think as, as a beginner, that's an afterthought or something that you just kind of tack on uh, later. But I think eventually you start thinking with that first. And then you start to really appreciate um, how powerful these, these things are and uh, the kind of guarantees they can give you. So I think the first question is what happens when the thing when your process dies, what should happen? Right. Right. And what, and just, we should just clarify, what do you mean by dying in this case? Like the process crashes, uh, it got unexpected input. Maybe you were calling out to an API that returned a, uh, a response you weren't expecting. Uh, a user submitted some kind of garbage. You ran out of memory, uh, or disk space. So you're talking about kind of expected errors or unexpected errors there, right? I guess I'm talking about both. I mean, there's there's the whole let it crash philosophy and people say, oh, well, if I'm supposed to let it crash, why should I check for errors? And it shouldn't always crash. If you are expecting an error to come back or some sort of funny input, uh, look for that. Sanitize your user input. Um, match on some error tuples coming from uh, your external API. Like take these steps and recover from them if you can recover from them. I think the point is if it's unrecoverable, then then don't worry about it. Right. I honestly, this is the the blog post I always plug about this whole topic. Um, is the Zen of Erlang by Fred Herbert. 
believe, um, which is it does such a good job of doing the overview about like the crash, the let it crash philosophy, which I think people, you're, you're completely right. People interpret as like, oh, I'm just going to always let it crash. But but you can really cl- like classify errors as expected versus unexpected. And if there's things that you know will happen, you don't need to let your process crash unless that's a good way to deal with it. Um, a lot of the time, like dealing with it and then, you know, passing back the result back down the chain is, is, is the right way to deal with it. But sometimes when something unexpected does happen, the right way to deal with it is to just let it crash, right? And then that process, because of the beauty in supervisors and depending on the supervision strategy you've chose, um, will mean that that process can come back. Um, it won't just automatically retry if anyone's thinking that Erlang is magic and Elixir is magic, therefore. Um, that is definitely not true, although you can you can implement some retry logic yourself into to, to dealing with these things as well. But, you know, you have you have these safeguards and a lot of the time, like, you know, flipping the off and on switch is a good way to, to kind of reset state and try again. To use a more concrete example uh, for Ross's question, if I have a Phoenix app, so that comes with its own supervision tree. You can see it in your um, in your application file. Uh Mm-hmm. It defines your app as a supervisor and it starts up a supervisor for your endpoint. And I believe for your repo, that's also set up as a supervisor. Yeah. And then the repo has um, several children that uh, hold the database connections. So I generally create, I will create a new supervisor if I have um, a new service in my application. Um, maybe it's something that's doing some background work or maybe it's a, uh, Maybe it's a service that connects to um, an external resource and I check out um, connections to uh, like a connect from a connection pool to the service. Um, I will usually spin up a new supervisor because I want a little more control over the, um, the sub processes uh, being restarted. And I don't want to have to deal with that at my application level. I don't want to have to supervise these things like all of my, uh, new processes at a very high level because that gives me uh, a coarse control over them. Mm-hmm. So you're saying like if one of those sub processes dies, you don't want it to necessarily like go up to your application supervisor and restart everything. You want to say that you're going to manage that in its own supervision tree, first of all. Yeah, exactly. And that supervision tree ultimately flows up to my applications tree. But um, I now have flexibility within that subtree to control how things are um, started and, and stopped. And we should point out here that supervisors have options for um, not restarting workers, always restarting workers, uh, restarting processes that were spawned after the one that died. Uh, there is a caveat that if you have a supervisor that's set to always restart the process uh, and the process keeps failing, um, the supervisor will eventually crash if it tries to restart it too many times and it dies too quickly. It sort of propagates that up the tree and you can end up bringing your application down. So um, I would not set up a supervisor to supervise something that divides by zero. (laughs) Right. But then again, that should be like hopefully an expected error in your system, right? Versus the unexpected there. Don't divide by zero kids. You heard it here first. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. I, 
Yeah, I, I, I think um, you did a good job of explaining that. I'm, I mean, like for Ross's question, like how would you pick to do it? I think it's whenever you have something that needs to be managed independently of the of the thing above it, which is basically exactly what you said um, there. And like, it, it is worth like if you haven't if you haven't tried out running like observer.start on your Phoenix app, definitely do that. Like. It's a really cool way to see what supervisors are started when you start your Phoenix application. Um, so the observer is um, a tool built into Erlang uh, and it visualizes all your process trees and you can see your supervision trees inside of that. So you can see like what Desmond was talking about earlier where you start it up um, and then you'll see your endpoint. And then underneath that, you can see all the connection pool for for each of the uh, connections for the cowboy processes there as well. I think this gets into the second part of our uh, design consideration, which is that you can use them to think about different um, logical parts of your application. Uh, what you should not do is say, well, I have a bunch of processes that all have the same restart strategy. They all do different things across my app. So because they have the same restart strategy, I should put them under a single supervisor that just manages like transient restarts. Uh, that's not what you should do. Um, instead, you can th even if you have many things that have many processes that would have the same restart strategy as uh, siblings in in or cousins, I guess, like one level up in the tree and their children. I would put a new supervisor in just so I can think about okay, this is a new section of my app. This is like a separate kind of contained piece of functionality. Um, and then you can visualize that with tools like a, the Observer. Um, and I think that helps to drive out app design. Um, so that's another way that I'll use supervisors. No, definitely. Yeah, that logical grouping makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it, it is really worth like digging through the supervisor docs as well and reading about the different restart strategies that they have. Um, I mean, there's four restart strategies that you should think about um uh, and then yeah there, there's a lot there's a lot to dig into there like uh and i know there's been a lot of good resources online about talking about um otp and you know looking at some of these things in a bit more detail as well and we can link to some of those in the show notes i'll give you another example um i'm working on a personal project that um looks at your uh time spent in meetings each week and it um, on Friday night, it sends you an email with a summary of, oh, you spent three hours of meetings on Tuesday, four hours on Thursday, three hours this week with so-and-so and et cetera. And so uh, the sending an email on Friday night, I handle with um, every user gets their own process. Whenever a user signs up, a process is created. Um, or when the system boots, it spins up a process for each user, which then immediately goes to sleep until Friday at 7 p.m. in the user's local time. So we know their time zone, we do some math and say, okay, well, it's however many seconds, go to sleep, wake back up. So then Friday at seven, uh, the process wakes up and it sends the email. It does the work, it fetches uh, data from Google, fires off the email, goes back to sleep until next Friday. So these processes can die. Uh, maybe Google's down, maybe the email server's down, maybe I have some bug in my code and it's trying to compute everything and something blows up, well, then my process crashes. And in uh, an ordinary state of affairs or perhaps an unordinary state of affairs, uh, 
nothing would happen next Friday. Like it would, it would never start again. This user stops getting their emails. Um, but because I have these under a supervisor that specifically manages the sleeping processes that wake up to send an email to people once a week, um, I can say, okay, start the thing again. Uh, if it fails now, they won't get that one email that failed, obviously, because we don't know how to deal with it, but it will try again next week with next week's data, uh, with next week's, uh, whatever else is different. Maybe they change their email. Maybe they change their preferences. Um, so now I can think about, well, this is the part of my app that's responsible for sending emails. And this is a way I can say if my worker processes that are responsible for this task, uh, fail, then um, make sure that they try again next time. And of course I can dynamically add these things to supervisors as users sign up. Um, I don't have to just wait to, mm -hmm. for the app to stop and restart. Right, so you're, so you're like designing it around containing those failures, right? Like you're saying that if it happens, I want, it, I want to limit the, the fallout of that failure to just this group of things and, and not like affect lots of other things in the system. Yeah, one process failing won't um, affect any other process because it's its own process. And I've just have this uh, one process per user for this one task I want to do. So if this thing fails, then other processes that manage other work for a user, maybe there's some other kind of background refresh. Maybe there's a different email that goes out. Uh, those are all unaffected by this one thing failing. Of course, you can make all those other processes fail if you want to under a supervisor though as well, right? You could use like a a one for all strategy. So you can say that like, if one of the child process dies, I want to kill all of the other child processes and then restart all of them. Sure. I mean, suppose I had a case where each user had several of these processes for themselves and uh, they were each responsible for a different piece of work. Maybe we're connecting to several different calendars um, and we can only summarize the results if we hear back from everyone. Uh, well, one of them fails. Well, then the others shouldn't bother Continue, continuing with their work because they were all dependent on their upstream sibling to succeed. So in that case, I would say, you know what? Screw everyone, clear it all out. We'll try it again next time. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the kind of flexibility you get with this, with the supervision strategies as well. Like, um, so I, yeah, again, it's like, these are all in the docs. Um, you should definitely dig into it and like play around with some different examples. It's honestly like just building little processes that come up and die and come up and die is like a really good way to just learn about supervision strategies and how things work. Um, and then definitely like thinking about it and drawing it out on a bit of paper has really helped me before, like drawing trees and being like, oh, if this one fails, I, I want to just restart that. I don't want to have to restart everything there and, and thinking about it like that logically. But yeah, just containing your failures. That's what that's what we're really talking about, like making sure that if something happens, it's it's contained to that area of, app, of the application. And if it needs to go up and restart other things, the supervisor will also do that as well. Or you can set it to, to not do that, but it will do that by default. Um, so it can go up the tree and restart different parts of the tree as well. Yeah, and it it's nice having these uh, design forcing functions. Because uh, I do think you end up with uh, better structured applications with... Uh, very narrowly defined uh, units of work, very tightly controlled uh, data boundaries and uh, layers of responsibility. No, absolutely. Absolutely. That seems to be a recurring theme of what we talk about, Desmond. 
Maybe we've been around doing software for too long. Sorry, what's the recurring theme? Is it is it Star Trek? <laughs> I mean, that is also <laughs> one of our recurring themes. That is true. Just like banging on about abstractions and uh, design. This is a podcast about Elixir application design. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe we're doing our jobs then. Is that what you're trying to say? Possibly, or maybe we're just uh, answering the questions that we want to answer. That's but let true. us that's rehash true. our favorite talking points. Yes. Yeah, that, that's another good point. We're probably just selecting these things. But but that being said, if you do want to hear us talk about something else, you know, submit an issue to our uh, GitHub repository at elixirtalk slash elixirtalk. Um, open up an issue there and we will chat about it on an upcoming show. Um, we also just love hearing your feedback as well. If you've got anything you want to tell, um, talk to us about or if you vehemently disagree with something that we said in a past episode, let us know. So uh, you can get us on uh, Twitter at Elixir Talk as well. Yeah, we don't want this uh, podcast to seem like we're sitting here making pronouncements ex cathedra that cannot be challenged. Um, feel free to spar with us. Actually, since this has come up, something I wanted to mention about our uh, podcast last time about storing state. One thing that we didn't mention uh, with... The difference between using, say, a gen server versus uh, an ETS table is that um, gen servers serialize access. So if you are storing a piece of data in memory and everyone wants this piece of data, they're all going to have to wait their turn um, in this gen servers queue to get that out, whereas ETS will allow uh, concurrent reads. So beware of bottlenecks. Um, yeah, just something I wanted to point out from last time. No, that's a really good point. Yeah. And uh, yeah, definitely check out X. It's, it's a good way to get around that problem for sure. So cool. Yeah. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. This has been another uh, wonderful episode of Elixir Talk. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. And uh, yeah, you know, reach out to us, hit us up. We, uh, we love to hear from you guys. And uh, yeah. And remember, if you've got any questions, just uh, go on to the repository. It's uh, github.com slash Elixir Talk slash Elixir Talk. And as always, keep elixirin. Keep elixirin. <laughs>